Today's video was recorded on February 7th, 2023. Please excuse my voice, I'm getting over a cold and I lost at least a portion of my voice. So today's lesson is the fourth in our series on God's appointed feasts or the biblical holidays. In our previous lesson, that's week three, we looked at the elements of the Last Supper that we find in our New Testament, and we saw how they line up with a Passover celebration meal. Now, that's what we refer today as a Passover Seder. And we saw how remarkable it was that Jesus uses those elements of that meal to communicate this new covenant to his disciples. But what about the remainder of the night? It's still Passover. And that's what we're going to look at this week in this lesson. This is part four now. We're going to go to the Gethsemane and those events that follow after Jesus and his disciples finish their meal. They're still in Passover mode. That evening, according to Exodus, is a night for watching that all of Israel is supposed to keep for all the generations to come. And this night, as we'll find out in this lesson, happens at a place called Gethsemane and not a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. The Bible never puts those two words together. So please join us as we explore what a Gethsemane is and then the remarkable events that are taking place that evening with Jesus. Now, at Fig Tree Ministries, we're a 501c3 nonprofit and we're supported through the generosity of our amazing donors. If you've found our lessons valuable in your study of the Bible, we ask that you would consider becoming a monthly supporter. You can create a monthly giving plan for as little as $5 per month. And your financial support directly impacts our ability to continue to provide rich and meaningful lessons that help you and others just like you go deeper into the biblical text. Now, we've included a link below in the description section, and then it'll take you directly to our donation page, which is through a third-party source. It's called DonorBox. And then you can also click the support link that's above in this video. We hope you enjoy this lesson on the Gethsemane and the deep significance of Jesus's actions that evening during what is called a night for watching. So this will be our last one on Passover before moving on. But last week when we did the Last Supper, the Last Supper then moves into to the Gethsemane. We'll talk about that tonight. And what's called a night for watching, that's right out of the book of Exodus. I'll show you that. So they're still firmly in Passover mode through the night. And then next week, we'll move on to Pentecost event and uh, then start getting on to the rest of them. This will be the last one on Passover. But, you know, the New Testament writers, so much of our Gospels, are these final events, and so much of it is putting it into the context of Passover, it really becomes the holiday, because I think, and I think in John, he mentions three Passovers, and when we get to Rosh Hashanah, I'll talk more about this, but the rabbis wonder, when was the beginning of the world, and when is the new year? When's the official new year? They, they want to mark the official new year with when God created the world. And some said Passover and others said Rosh Hashanah. And I think John is saying it's Passover. There's a new creation kicking off, just like Genesis in the beginning. That's how John starts his gospel. So 
John especially is very focused on that Passover. We'll talk more about that later. All right, so this is our fourth in a row. As I mentioned, we're all, we're, we're, we've got seven holidays and we've only knocked down, we're on the second one. Uh, we'll do a little bit on first fruits next week, but not a whole lot. And then we'll move on to Pentecost. So that's where we're at. And today, lots of pictures. So I'll show you lots of pictures of Jerusalem and then also of Gethsemane's. So you'll get a good feel of what those are. So number one on your sheet, we're going to start with Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. They're right across from each other. So, for instance, if we look in the background of this photo that you have on your screen, great sunset that night. Um, I'm standing right next to the Temple Mount, looking to the east, and this is the Mount of Olives. So many of you have been up on the Mount of Olives. Perhaps you walked down to the churches at the base of that. But that's the Mount of Olives. and there's a very steep valley called the Kidron Valley. John mentions this in uh, John 18, verse 1, which we'll look at in a minute. So that Kidron Valley is the steep valley that you walk down to get over to the Mount of Olives or Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. Okay, so this photo, I have my back to the Temple Mount. Now, if I went over to the Mount of Olives and took a picture, it would look like this. So now this is sunrise as the sun is coming up behind me. Great time to get out there. It was freezing cold. It was like 6.30 in the morning because uh, this one was taken sometime in January. But makes great photo of all that Jerusalem limestone in the, um, in the sunlight as the sun's rising. Okay, so if I went back, so if I went and stood right next to that Temple Mount, and I took a photo to the looking to the east, I'd see the Mount of Olives. Go to the Mount of Olives. You see now uh, the temple, the mosque that's there today. And so this, whoops, sorry, didn't mean to do that. This is the Temple Mount, big flat area that was the sacred area for the temple. The Kidron Valley, same valley, runs down below. And then, of course, just beyond where that mosque is, is the city of Jerusalem. And of course, you get the modern city of Jerusalem behind that today. It's hard to tell where the old city ends in this photo and the new city begins. But anyways, the city is behind that uh, Temple Mount. Okay? So that's Jerusalem, the Kidron Valley. So if I flip back around and say, okay, let's look over at this Mount of Olives and the Kidron Valley, the large building that you see right here in the center. Many of you have been there. It's a beautiful church called the Church of All Nations. And, well, we have a problem. And part of what we're going to do tonight is tackle this problem. But the Church of All Nations, part of the reason everybody goes there is because right next to the Church of, of All Nations, which is inside their fenced-in property, is an area with olive trees, and everybody calls that the Garden of Gethsemane. And what we're going to find tonight is, well, the Bible never calls it the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Gethsemane is actually way over here. And so I'll show you tonight 
This is where the Gethsemane is. But we forget. We don't know, you know, part of our biblical studies, what we're doing, what Fig Tree Ministries is biblical studies. You got to go back and look at what's on the ground, what's the culture, what's surrounding it so that we can understand it before making a decision about something or extrapolating from that. So that's the Gethsemane. And there's some confusion, of course, about was there a garden? Okay, now real quick, uh, I'm just going to put up a map. Maps are not always hard to see on, or yeah, they're not always easy to see on Zoom. But I just want to show you, last week we were in the upper room. Now the upper room is in that bottom uh, left-hand corner on your screen. That's the Essene quarter. That's where they were having their meal. At some point, if you can't see that screen very well, pull out a map in the back of your Bible. You'll see where the upper room is down in that uh, southwestern corner. There's two large valleys, one to the south of uh, Jerusalem. It's called the Valley of Hinnom, the Hinnom Valley. Okay. You say Valley Gi. So Gi Hinnom, which gets translated Gehenna. The Valley of Hinnom is to the south, and then the Kidron Valley is to the east. So you have very you have steep valleys, and of course that's part of the protection of a of a city back then, is to build it on a steep valley. Okay, that's the Kidron right there to the to the east. Now if I go a little bit closer, so last week we said, ha, they're down here in that Essene quarter in the upper room. When the meal's over, they're going to walk through the city. It's not that far of a walk, maybe 10 or 15 minutes. They're going to go past the temple. They're singing their praises. They're still in Passover night. And then they're going to cross this very deep valley called the Kidron. And they're going to end up just on the other side at the, well, here it's labeled the Garden of Gethsemane. One of the important things about this is that ideally you come to Jerusalem for Passover and you spend you stay in Jerusalem for Passover. So they had been staying over in Bethany, which is just on the outside. It's just past the city limits of Jerusalem. But tonight they're going to stay inside Jerusalem at the Gethsemane. That's within the what would you call it city limits in their day. Bethphage is actually the dividing line. So Jesus had been staying in Bethany, but tonight he doesn't leave Jerusalem. That's part of the Passover celebration. Okay? All right, so here's the big question. What is a Gethsemane? Well, and this is really key to the whole, the whole thing, the word Gethsemane is two Hebrew words that we end up shoving together, kind of like last week when we talked about Judas Iscariot, not really his last name, Ish Kiriot, the man from Kiriot. So Gethsemane is Got and Shemanim. And this is number two on your handout. So Got Shemanim. A Got is a press. I'll show you. It's a large, large stone system that's pressing. What are they pressing? Oils. So got Shemanim. Put that together, put it, turn it into Greek and then into English, we get Gethsemane. Okay? So it's an oil press. Now it's a location for an oil press. 
That's Gethsemane. And I'll show you a whole bunch of pictures in a minute of what they look like. Um, okay, now this leads to our problem. Number three on your handout. And I put a question mark on this. Garden of Gethsemane. Is there a garden of Gethsemane? Does the Bible say that? And the answer is no. I'll show you the verses in a minute. We smash them together. There's a garden mentioned. There's a Gethsemane mentioned. We put them together and make this place called the Garden of Gethsemane. So, if you look at your handout, you start with Matthew. Matthew says they went to a place called Gethsemane. We just determined that means Gat Shemanim. They went to an oil press. Well, what is that? I'll show you in a minute. They went to an oil press. Mark says, Mark 14.32, they went to a place called Gethsemane. It's the same phrase. Okay, so in, in uh, we'll read this in a minute, so don't flip there yet. But Mark says, they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. Got Shemanim. So that's the place. You get to Luke, and this is the third one. I, or, or, I'm sorry, still on, yeah, still on number three. But Luke says, they came to the place. Now, he doesn't call it a Gethsemane, but he doesn't, also doesn't call it a garden. He just says they came to the place. Tapos, which means there's a specific geographical location that they came to. All right, so those are the three synoptic gospels. And then we get to John. Well, John is the only one that calls it a garden. He says there was a garden, but he never uses the word Gethsemane. He only uses the word garden. So uh, this one, well, if you want to look at it, it's John 18.1. If you have your Bible, can turn to John 18.1, because I, I want to show you, too, that he does mention in this verse the Kidron. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with the disciples over, now in this version that I'm using, they still use the word Wadi. That's what we, you would call it in the Middle East. The Valley of Kidron or the Wadi of Kidron, where there was a garden. Now, we're going to get to something at the very end of this. It has to do with John. John is the only one that calls it a garden, and he's emphasizing garden multiple times. He, rec he mentions garden, all having to do with Jesus' death, resurrection. And the question is why? John has a theological purpose to it, so we'll get to that in the end. But, okay, does this make sense? So, if we go back, let me just back out of this one real quick, and you say, is there a place called the Garden of Gethsemane? Well, the, biblically, the answer is no. Now, you would probably, anybody could say, look, if there's a Gethsemane, if there's a olive, if there's a uh, oil press, a Gat Shemanim, well, there's probably an olive grove, right? There's, there's something growing down there. It's fertile ground. You grow olive trees, then you get, you're going to press them in the press. So certainly there would be something that we could call garden. But the point is, the Bible never puts those two words together. Most people don't know that. And John then has a very specific reason, theological reason, of why he's sticking why he's emphasizing garden. We'll get to that at the end, okay? All right, so 
We're going to go to the Gethsemane, but first of all, what is it? Well, we, we already said it's, a, it's an oil press, but it's much more than that. Let's, let's go look at a few places that have Gethsemanes, or at least I'll show you a few, uh, or a, a few oil presses. This is one that's west of Jerusalem. So Gethsemanes, and I have this in, on, under number four. You want to find a place that is at least protected from the heat. So they often will try to build them in a cave. So if you have a good cave, they'll make a Gethsemane out of it. And what you see here on the screen, that, of course, is the millstone that's going to crush the olives. So they crush the olives. You'll get olive oil will run off it. They capture what they can. Then you have a whole bunch of pulp. Here's another picture of the, of the uh, millstone. This is down, go down into a cave. Next to this millstone is a room that looks like this. And this is where you get the pressing that happens. So you have all of this olive pulp that was crushed up. You take the pulp and you put it into little baggies. And back on the, in the screen here where you see that giant, uh, the wooden pole, there are a whole bunch of stacked up inside of there are like burlap bags. You shove all of the pulp into those burlap bags. Then you crank down a lever and you can see the weights. They're going to add on to that lever. And you're going to just crush that pulp and you squeeze all of the olive oil out of that. And it'll run into a basin, which you collect, and then you go continue your processing. So this is what a Gethsemane looks like. They all have the same system or something that's similar to that system. Let me show you. Here's a millstone from Capernaum. Capernaum was known for making food processing implement uh, millstones for flour. This, of course, is a millstone for olives. So you would press, of course, that would be, that's the millstone that Jesus is going to put around your neck if you're not paying attention, right? Put a millstone around your neck, send them into the sea. Now, again, you press all of the, you crush the olives, you take the pulp, you're going to put them into the little burlap sacks. And here now you have where the pressing is going to happen. That little circle right there, you set your burlap sacks on, you put a giant stone, I'll show you a picture in a minute, a heavy stone starts to press down, and then the oil runs into that uh, catch basin. And it would sit there until the oil is done running. And then if I move this picture over, that tall stone right there, you can see they have a tall stone is set up right on top of one of those presses. And that's that tall stone that's going to put the weight down. And of course, if we zoom in, what does it say? Olive press. That's Gat Shemanim, a press for oils. So that big stone. Now, just visually, imagine. Jesus is at the Gethsemanim. It's a place of pressing. And he is going to have the weight of the sin of the world pressing down on him. Not a giant stone. It's going to be the sin of the world pressing down on Jesus. And so it makes a great visual that he's not just in a garden. He's at a Gethsemanim where he's being pressed. Okay? So it's a 
fantastic visual for what's actually happening in the garden that night. Okay, so that's those are some pictures everywhere you go. You go to you go to Corazine, you got the same thing. You got wherever you go, you're gonna find uh, oil pressing uh, equipment, and that's got Shemanim. So if we go back to this and say, all right, then where's the biblical got Shemanim oil press? Well, I mentioned here's the um, Church of All Nations, beautiful church for those that have been there. It's gorgeous, gorgeous church. And right next to it is an olive grove. And this is what, when everybody goes to Jerusalem, they go here. And there's even a sign on the Church of All Nations that says, well, the oil press is over there, like points to it, but it doesn't, like, you really have to be pulled over to the oil press to say, here's the actual Gat Shemanim that, that Jesus was going to. Oh, by the way, let me ask you a question. Well, I'll, I'll cover that in a minute. Sorry. I, don't, I try not to get out of order. Now, you guys have been to this garden, right? Many of you have gone to Israel. You've been to that garden. It has amazing trees. These are some of the olive trees that are there in that grove. Now, they're not as old as Jesus. I think some of the oldest are eight to 900 years old. That's an old, old tree. Not Jesus old. But anyways, it's a beautiful garden. Those old olive trees are amazing. So it's a, it's a wonderful experience, but not likely the actual place, okay? So if we go back here, we say, there's what everyone calls the Garden of Gethsemane. Where's the actual Gethsemane? Well, it's over here, hidden away. This is the Gethsemane. And I'll take you up to it in a second. When you first walk up towards it, what you see I, I knew where it was. Bonnie and I were walking around, and I already knew where to go. So we walk up to this, and you think, well, where did it go? I can't see it. You're walking into this place. This is an Eastern, Eastern Christianity, and they call it the Tomb of the Virgin Mary. So if you go in that open door, it takes you down a couple flights of stairs. Now, in our Western tradition, Mary was buried at Ephesus with John. But Eastern tradition, she was buried here. And of course, we have competing Christianities, Western and Eastern. But you, you walk up like you're going to the tomb of the Virgin Mary. Then you look over in the corner. There's a little hallway back there. And you, turn, you look back in that hallway, and when you turn the corner, this is what you see. Gethsemane. And you go, oh, this is the cave. So this, and that's exactly what it is. This was a cave that was used for oil pressing. So you walk through that door, and now you're inside of a cave. Now it's been reworked a little bit, but archaeologists have found the places where they would have the, the stones and the, the lever arms that would create the pressing. But now you're inside a cave. Now, here's what I was about to say a minute ago. What do you do with a cave that's not in use because it's not the time of year for oil pressing? Well, you post it on VRBO or Airbnb as a room to rent, right? This is vacation rental by owner. Whoever owned that, and this is what they did. This is what's happening with Jesus. 
there's a place to stay. This is where pilgrims stayed because April, March to April, is not oil pressing season or olive pressing season. So you have a cave, you have a you have a Gethsemane cave. Makes a great place for pilgrims to sleep on Passover as people are coming into town. And so you rent out your cave or however the person, you know, gifted it as as charity or whatever. So it appears that instead of going back out to Bethany, this is where they're going to spend the night. They're inside a Gethsemane. At one point, Jesus walks out of it. And then now he's outside of the Gethsemane, whether there was olive trees or whatever was around there. But there's more going on with when we understand what a, an oil press is, the Gat Shemanim. Now, it's eastern, so it's, it's a place where you have to be quiet, because anytime you go to an eastern place, no talking, you go inside. It's, it's actually, I mean, it's a, it's a nice, cozy little chapel there that they've made. But there's a great article, and I completely spaced and did not put this on your handout. This was published in Biblical Archaeology Review. And Joan Taylor was the scholar that wrote on this, and she titled it The Garden of Gethsemane, Not the Place of Jesus' Arrest. Now she goes on to say, she says here, most of the pilgrims are never told that the New Testament does not mention a Garden of Gethsemane. The cave, Gethsemane, on the other hand, is probably genuine. So she believes that what archaeologists have discovered inside that cave is that's the place where they went. Okay, so we're done with the Passover meal. We go over to the place where we're likely going to be sleeping. It's inside of a cave. That's the Gethsemane. You get the visual of the pressing down, the weight of those stones that are pressing down on the, the, the olives would be a great imagery as Jesus is now got to take on the weight of the world there. Okay, so they get into the garden. Now we're going to get into the details of what's going on in that garden. And one of the first things we have to do is we have to ask about a fifth cup of wine. Now, last week, if you remember, we looked at four cups of wine for Passover. That's what the Passover meal is structured around. The cup of redemption is the cup where Jesus says, this cup is the blood of a new covenant, right? It's a covenant of redemption. God's going to redeem the world. The cup of consummation, where you're going to consummate the marriage. Jesus says, I'm not going to drink that yet. That happens when the wedding happens, when we meet our bridegroom as the bride. But the rabbis were debating, is there possibly a fifth cup? Okay? So we would take the four cups here, and we would say, is there a fifth cup? Now, they never actually came to a conclusion. So if you go to a Passover Seder today, oh, they never came to a conclusion, but they said, ah, one day, one day, Elijah is going to precede the Messiah. And when Elijah comes back, he'll explain everything to us. So until that time, we call it the Elijah cup. So if you go to a Passover, there's a cup set out for Elijah. But the question is, is there a fifth cup? Okay? And the point of bringing that up is we're right in the middle of Passover in that celebration. So as we go into the garden with Jesus, 
this is something that ever that the Jews around them would know as a debate that's going on. Okay, now let's read some text. So turn if you would, Mark 14, 32 to 38. God willing, that now that you have a visual and an understanding of what a Gethsemane is or a Gat Shemanim, then it starts to take on a little bit different meaning as we read this. Okay, Mark 14, 32 to 38. Now, right off the top, you'll see already we've got, ah, there's something different about this. They came to a place which was named Gethsemane. Got Shemanim. He says to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took with him Peter, James, and John, and he began to be greatly troubled and distressed. And we're going to look at that. The Greek there is not easy. So I'm going to give you a, a few phrases that kind of gets the idea of the word troubled. Troubled and distressed. Anytime you see two adjectives, you got to ask, why two? Why do we need two? Isn't one good enough? Okay, he says to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch. There's going to be, that word watch is going to be repeated. Okay, verse 35. He went a little forward, fell on the ground, and he prayed that if it were possible, that the hour might pass away from him. Verse 36. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible to you. Please remove this cup from me. However, not what I desire, but what you desire. Not my will, God, but yours. If it's your will that I drink this cup, then I drink the cup. Okay? 37. Now he comes back. He came back. He found them, he found them sleeping. He says, Peter, or he says to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch for one hour? So there's our repeating word, watch. Verse 38. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And once again, you see the word watch. Okay? So, he goes out. Now, I believe it's in Luke. They mention he's at the place. Then he goes out of the place. So, it's like he moved away from the Gethsemane, the cave. He's going out to pray. He has the disciples. Of course, they've had four cups of wine or, yep, four cups of wine. So they're tired. It's late at night and they're falling asleep. But why are they watching? All right. Well, we'll get to that one in a minute. And there's something that we have to deal with. This gets tough theologically. And it's number eight on your, I'll pull up the phrase from Mark, but Jesus is having a sudden realization. So Mark 14, 33. He took with him Peter, James, and John, and he began to be greatly troubled and distressed. Now, it's this phrase that the Greek is difficult, greatly troubled. And let, I'll at least a little bit on why is this theologically difficult. Well, when we think about the divinity of Jesus, we tend to assume, sometimes we, we put so much divinity in Jesus during his life, that we leave out his humanity. And so, while Jesus used his God powers, he always knows what's going to happen next. But that's not what this is telling us. This is telling us that he's 
Something is, he's realizing something. If you go the other direction, if you say Jesus showed up fully human and he leaves behind his divine powers, Paul says it, he emptied himself. So that as he's walking around, he's fully human, but he's sinless and he has a perfect connection with the Father. So he gets, he's always in connection with the Father. It's difficult for us in, in our, our sinful nature to keep that connection up. But anyways, the point is, is that we would often talk about this in seminary. The, the more you think about, people think, ah, God, he switched on his God powers and then he went back to being human or something like that. It's like, no, Jesus is in his humanity. And so we have to read it as he's always in humanity, which means he can learn stuff. He can change. Things become aware. And this is what the statement is saying. He began to be greatly troubled. How else could we say that in uh, that Greek phrase? There was a sudden realization. Um, I think the King James says, sore amazed. There's a, another way of putting it, terrified surprise. So the surprise, he didn't quite realize something was going to happen. Um, another one, shuddering horror. And there's a psychologist in the, at the University of Toronto. He, he writes and speaks a lot about the, the, the we're, in the, we're in a meaning crisis in, in our world, meaning people don't have, they don't find meaning in life. And I've heard him speak a number of times about the idea of horror. What's horror? And what he says is horror is when we start to lose grip on reality. Our idea of reality is suddenly crushed. And there's something terrible taking its place. The realization if you're at, uh, you know, at a, a Nazi concentration camp, that you're not just being split up with your parents. It's the realization that your parents were put to death. And that's that moment where, rea where the reality that you thought existed is shattered. That's horror. And I think that's what's happening to Jesus. He has an idea of what he thinks is going to happen. And it suddenly changes. And so we have to deal with what changed. What did he realize in that moment, right? Because he, was, he had this sudden realization and he's terribly distressed. Now, on a footnote, there's a, a book, great book if um, you're interested. Now, it's a dynamic book. It's not your normal Christian book because Shalom ben Korin is Jewish, and he's writing it. It's called J Brother Jesus, the Nazarene Through Jewish Eyes. Now, so he's writing it from the perspective of a Jew, but he sees everything as a Passover, and he sees in this this anguish that D Jesus is having to deal with, and he thinks that it has to do with that fifth cup, the possible fifth cup. So if you're interested in that book, um, great. It is a good resource. Okay, his thought is, is there a fifth cup? And what begins to dawn, the sudden realization for Jesus is the answer is yes, there is a fifth cup. And that cup is going to be the cup of God's wrath. And it's supposed to be poured out on the nations, the goyim, the Gentiles, right? And it's the sudden horrifying realization that the cup of God's wrath 
is the cup that he's going to have to drink. Not just persecuted by the people in power because they don't like him. He's going to have to take on God's cup of wrath. Okay, so if we look, it's on, I put, I put this one on your sheet just to make it a little bit easier. Jeremiah 25, 15. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, he's saying this to Jeremiah, take this cup of wine of wrath at my hand. So there's this cup that exists. What's it filled with? The wine of God's wrath. And cause the nations whom I send you to, to drink it. And the nations there, the Gentiles. And I think this is what's dawning on Jesus. So you go back to Mark, and he says, Father, all things are possible. Is there another way to do this? If so, please take this cup from me. Why is he using that language? And it has to connect with that dawning realization that he's going to have to. Now, this is where it gets incredible for us, right? He could have easily bolted. He could have headed to the wilderness. He could have easily gotten away. But he didn't. He was obedient. And he said, no, no, no. Not my will, but your will. Not what I desire, but what you have for me, Father. If I'm supposed to drink the cup of wrath, then that's the cup I will take, if it's your will. And thank God he took that cup of wrath, because guess who it's not poured out on? Us, right? That is amazing. Okay, so we have to deal with that dawning realization. Something that he wasn't quite aware of is going to be terrible for him. And that's what it seems is going on there in Mark. Now I'm going to, I'll wrap it up in in number 10, but hang on for a second. Number nine, just real quick. It's a night for watching. Why does he tell the disciples, are you going to watch with me? Are you going to watch with me? Well, what's happening on the Passover? That Passover celebration, the angel of death is coming, right? And all the Jews have to stay inside their house as long as they have the blood of the lamb protecting them. But Jesus is a firstborn and that angel of death is going to come for the firstborn if you're not protected. And that night, Jesus knows, realizes he's not protected. The, The angel of death is coming for him. But it's a night for watching. It's right, it's perfectly set in the Passover. So in Exodus 12, there's a verse, Exodus 12, 42. And it says basically, it was a night, this is talking about God led, is leading them out of, his, of, of Egypt. It says, it was a night of watching by the Lord, meaning God kept vigil, and he watched over the Israelites to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So, because the Lord did that, now you're going to mimic that. So, this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all of the Israelites throughout their generations. That's what's going on. Why can't you watch with me? He keeps repeating that word. And it's a, it's a practice that if, as religious Jews, it's part of your Passover ceremony. It didn't end back there. Now, you, now you're in the night of watching. You stand vigil as a matter of uh, what God 
his commandment in Exodus. So that's what the disciples are failing to do. They're failing to keep watch. Okay, that's. I just wanted to make sure you saw that there's, we're still in that Passover mode. All right, number 10, and this is the one that I think we, we have to go to this, the, the dawning realization, we look at Jesus's obedience that he didn't fail, that he took that cup on our behalf, and that for that, there's a new creation, according to the book of John. Okay? Now, in the old, well, I'm sorry, in the, in the first century, within first century Judaism, there's a theological concept, and it has to do with what they would call the last Adam or the second Adam. And it's their musings. They're thinking about Adam. Hey, you know, if Adam had never sinned, we would have no reason for a Messiah, right? There's nothing to redeem had we not fallen away. So if Adam hadn't sinned, then Adam's going to have to come back and be the redeemer. He's the second or the last Adam. That's their idea of the one who's going to restore the order that the first Adam couldn't do. Where is the first Adam located in Genesis? In a garden. Okay? He's in a garden. Where's John going to emphasize that Jesus is? In a garden. Because he's got a theological purpose. He's telling you who Jesus is. So, John. John's the one emphasizing the garden. He's going to place Jesus in the garden as, the, as that last Adam, the second Adam. And for John, his whole gospel is a repeat of creation. First sentence, in the beginning, right? Boom, goes right back to Genesis 1. John has seven signs, just like seven days of creation. The sixth sign is a man that's raised he was dead in the dirt and raised to life. That's Lazarus. Just like the sixth day of creation. And he's telling us there's a new beginning here. Uh, when he gets to Jesus in the garden with Mary, uh, it's the first day of the week. Like there's a dawning of a new age. The creation is born again. And that's what the Passover, all throughout the Old Testament, every time Israel had a new beginning, they celebrate the Passover as the dawning of a new age. We're born again, a rebirth of the nation. So John's the one who emphasizes, stick him back in the garden. In fact, at one point, Mary confuses him with the gardener, right? And what's, what's Adam's job in the garden? Take care of it. Tend the garden. And then you get uh, the, the confusion of the gardener in John. So John's got a theological pur purpose for this. Okay. Next point. In the ancient Near East, sweat. Sweat, in all ancient Near East writings, has to do with anxiety. Okay? So sweat has to do with anxiety. So in Genesis 3, God curses the ground, doesn't curse Adam and Eve, he curses the ground, and then he says in Genesis 3.19, by the sweat of your brow will you eat food. Now, is he saying that farming is going to be difficult? Well, in the verse before this, 
He says, you're going to toil. The, the earth isn't going to cooperate with you. But the toiling is not just physical. There's, there's emotional anguish as well. Is a farmer ever completely satisfied? Is he ever not without anxiety about the future? Right? The, the earth is always in some way not cooperating. Nature is not cooperating. So when we see in Genesis 3, by the sweat of your brow will you eat your food, it doesn't mean it was hard work. It means with anxiety you will eat your food. You might have a meal today, but are you going to have a meal tomorrow? And you know it. You're aware of it. So whenever you see sweat, anxiety, is the market going to go down? Is there going to be a war? Is there going to be a, another pandemic? Is there going to be pestilence? Uh, uh, the farmers, are we going to get rain? Are we going to get, get too much rain? Everything is anxiety-driven. Even our Lord's Prayer, give us today our daily bread. Not for, not for months, right? So we're all, we're all riddled with anxiety over the future. But that's what sweat is. Now, why do we need to know this about sweat? Well, what happens to Jesus in the garden, according to Luke? He's sweating. And see, that, that's anxiety. It's the anxiety. Now we can connect the sudden realization of what's coming. And when you see sweat, let me, let, let me just say this. There's two times in the Bible that you see the word sweat. Guess what they are? The first Adam and the last Adam. So when, when Luke makes this comment about Jesus sweating in the garden, we have to know that sweat is a, is, is a euphemism for anxiety. That, by the way, comes from, I did, I did put a um, footnote on your sheet, Daniel Fleming. He's an uh, ancient Near East scholar. And he's like, look, everywhere you find the word sweat, it has nothing to do with hard work. It has to do with, has to do with anxiety. Even the word that we, uh, in, in Genesis 3, that we translate toiling, it, there's an emotional aspect to it as well. Okay? So, if you have your Bible, turn to Luke twenty-two forty-four. Now, if I'm going to wrangle anybody's feathers, it's going to be right here. So, I put it right at the end. So, if you have a question about it, you can immediately ask, because this is the one I assume we've all heard uh, sermons about Jesus sweating blood in the garden. And the problem is, that's not what the Bible says. And that's a, it's very common uh, for that interpretation. So, Luke... 2244 says, being in agony, right? So he's had the sudden realization. He's in agony. He prayed more earnestly. And now the focus is the sweat. His sweat became like. Now, what's the operative word there? Like. It's a comparison. Like great drops of blood falling on the ground. Now, it doesn't say his sweat was great drops of blood. His sweat was like. Now, first of all, sweat, that's anxiety. And so what Luke is saying here is his anxiety was so high. Now, okay, if you think about somebody sweating, it's perspiration, right? It never, it, it kind of just rolls off you or you look wet. 
But if you if somebody cuts their head open, how much blood's coming out? Like a ton. If you get a cut on your arm, if you slice your finger, it's drops of blood all the way to the bathroom until you can get, you know, something on it. That's the point. Is his anxiety went so high that it was as if that's how much sweat was there. Like blood falling. And that, I know there's a lot of confusion on that. So when you get back to this, Jesus is sweating. There's anxiety. And it's sweat like great drops of blood, not sweat of great drops, drops of blood. Now, what's the whole point of this? Well, if you can compare sweat to Adam in, in the garden to sweat with the last Adam in the garden, how did Jesus do? Did he, was he able to obey the commandment? Yes, that's the whole point. Where the first Adam failed, the second Adam didn't. And because of that, boom, the whole cosmos is reborn. And like Paul says in Romans 5, 5 one man's sin and death came into the world, and because of one righteous act, the righteousness spills over for many. And so it's, he took the, the cup of wrath onto himself so that we don't have to. And that's what's so powerful about it about what's going on in that garden. If we don't know the ancient uh, uh, idiomatic phrase of sweat and what it means, we can completely uh, miss that, that we're talking about anxiety rather than even just normal sweat. It's like a, well, anyways, you get the point. Okay, so what did we learn? What's a got shamanim? Well, it's an oil press. That's what we need to make sure we know, that, that Hebrew word. So we can go see an oil press. We can go inside of an oil press. You can stay inside of the cave of an oil press. You can imagine the weight of what's going on with Jesus pressing down on him as he's having to now face the reality of what's going to happen. And what's the reality? There's a fifth cup of wine, the cup of God's wrath that the, we don't have to drink anymore. Jesus took that on our behalf. But it was that shuddering horror where the the reality that you thought you knew was suddenly changed. That's the cup of wrath. And then you have the part in there. They're still in Passover mode. It's a night for watching. Why does he keep emphasizing the night for watching? And then finally, Jesus is the, 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 the last Adam, according to Paul. He's the one who's going to restore what the first Adam couldn't do. And that's obedience. But because he obeyed all the way up until the point of death, the whole cosmos is renewed. And that's part of this Passover. Uh, not only the whole message of Passover, but what's going on in that garden in just tremendous imagery. Okay, so that's Got Shemanim in a night for watching. 